Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Sax.com. This episode is brought to you by Snapple. Want to know another Snapple fact? The first hot air balloon passengers were a sheep, a duck, and a rooster. Ridiculous. Check out Snapple.com to find ridiculously flavored Snapple near you. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Art, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Holiday Powers, the host of the channel, Today, we'll be talking to Michelle Miller-Fisher and Amber Winnick, the co-authors of Designing Motherhood, Things That Make and Break Our Births. Welcome, Michelle and Amber. Thank you so much for having us, Holiday. Yes, thank you. I wondered if you would like to begin by both telling us a bit about yourself. Absolutely. And you're going to hear a lot of us saying, do you want to go first? (laughs) Because we are one brain. (laughs) Um, I can start, Amber, and I'll say I'm, sure. I'm originally great. from Scotland. Um, I'm based now in Providence, Rhode Island. I'm a curator at the Museum of Fine Arts in Boston. And for just under the last 20 years or so, I've worked in museums um, and uh, within various places in academia as a, a, a teacher. And so I am a curator in the contemporary department at the MFA, but I, I work really primarily with material culture. And that was developed um, through curatorial positions in um, New York at the Museum of Modern Art, um, at the Metropolitan Museum of Art, the Philadelphia Museum of Art. Um, and before that, I was a museum educator at the Guggenheim. And so I've, I've worked a lot with material culture in a sort of object-centered way through institutions. Um, yeah, Amber, I hand it to you. Great. Thank you. Um, so I am a mother of three and an independent writer and design historian. I'm based in the Hudson Valley in New York. Um, and I, uh, along with Michelle, studied design history. Um, I got my degree at the Bard Graduate Center in New York. And before that, I studied child development and cultural anthropology. Um, and, um, yeah, I mean, I have a different perspective because I've been working outside of institutions mostly. Um, but, and this project really sort of represents both of those experiences. And so how did you come to write Designing Motherhood? It started over an upside down cake. (laughs) (laughs) Michelle, I want to share that I actually uh, found the recipe recently. So I know just what upside down cake it was. (laughs) It it feels like very of the moment too. It was uh, a blood orange polenta Mm. almond Mm. upside down cake. (laughs) Just to add some flavor to this story (laughs) that we tell again and again. Um, Oh, and it feels very that, like bon appetit of the like yes. you know tens, right? <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> we first met over that cake. Um, Amber came to my house. I I threw a baby shower for one of our dearest friends, Jessica, and it was a really big, boisterous, noisy baby shower. It was fantastic, and so it wasn't mm-hmm. like we had a long, deep conversation that day. Um, but we met, and we really enjoyed meeting each other. And I think Jessica probably introduced us by saying, "You both should will have a lot to talk about." Um, because I think she knew we had overlapping interests. Um, and then we met about a year or so later over dinner um, again with Jessica. Thank you to her. And we did yeah. start to have a really long conversation about some of the shared interests we had around design for the arc of human reproduction. 
And Amber, I don't know if you remember specifics of that conversation. <laughs> if you want to take the story from there. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I feel like we connected about all kinds of things that evening. And then in subsequent um, dinners, lunches, that sort of thing, we just we were pretty excited to discover that we had so much in common in terms of our interests. Michelle had been uh, working on um, getting the breast pump um, to be recognized by her institution, MoMA. And I had been working on history of maternity fashion. And um, yeah, I mean, I think the conversation went on and on from there. And we decided to formally work together. Um, I think it was 2016 around. Yeah. And, yeah. Um, and then we were sending out book proposals by 2017. And, yeah. you know, it was, it was a, we look back and laugh so much at this because we just thought this was the most brilliant project ever. And that, of course, we were going to have our choice of publishers uh, to make this book happen because it really did start with the book. Um, yeah. We knew we wanted to make a book um, first and foremost. And, and we, um, we had, we had really lovely support. We, I, as Amber said, I tried to get the 1956 Einar Agnell breast pump, which is in the book now into MoMA's collection. And I'd given them a pretty ironclad, I thought design history to, to suggest why it should be there. Um, which really encompassed everything from its connections to machine art, uh, MoMA's very first show of modern design in 1934, um, all the way through to some of the more current conversations in design. For example, MIT, um, the Media Lab, they did the wonderful Make the Breast Pump Not Sock Hackathon in 2014. And so we really felt like there was um, a momentum, but also significant design history to, to make sure that this should be part of the same design canon as many other objects that were in MoMA's collection and others. And it didn't happen. There was definitely resistance to doing that. So what we did get, though, was amazing reviews of our book proposal by my then um, mentor, brilliant supervisor, curator Paolo Antonelli. We also um, had Chris Hudson, the director of MoMA's publishing, uh, take a look over it. And both of them were incredibly supportive. So we thought we had, we knew we had a strong book proposal. And they also did something very kind. They opened their Rolodexes to us. So we were able to send it out quite widely. And we just got back, when we did get back, a response which wasn't always guaranteed. So many people saying, they use the term fascinating a lot. Um, and they said, fascinating, but we don't do women's issues. Um, and you could just sort of read the air quotes behind um, the email or fascinating, but, um, you know, we no idea how we would promote a book like this. We just don't understand its disciplinary boundaries or fascinating, but we really don't understand who the audience would be. It's quite niche. Um, so a lot of responses in 2017, 2018 that, just they, they weren't sure who would read a book if this if it was published and, and how um, they would market this book. And then in 2019, um, after Me Too, after the New York Times parenting section came to be, after there had been this sort of efflorescence of literature from, you know, uh, Maggie Nelson and others, Heiji Shin. Yeah, Heiji yeah. Shin had been in the Whitney Biennial with their amazing pictures of, of people just emerging from um, the birth canal. Then in a week's, um, literally one week, we had three publishers come back to us and say, oh, you remember that book proposal that you sent us? It could be really interesting. Um, and we said at that time, great, we're ready to go. Mm -hmm. Wow. And so this is part of a larger project. Can you describe the relationship between the book and this larger multidisciplinary project that you're doing? Yeah. Well, it really all started with the book, right, Michelle? I mean, we if, if we knew we wanted to do one thing, we knew we wanted to do the book. But in order to make uh, the book happen, and um, it was going to be an expensive book to make because we knew from the start we wanted it to have a lot of images. Um, and uh, we needed a way to pay for those um, images book publishers' pockets aren't as deep as maybe they once were, and we knew that that um, was going to require some sort of external funding. 
Um, and we really struck gold when we partnered with the incredible Maternity Care Coalition out of Philadelphia. Um, we uh, w- was upon a recommendation of a mutual friend and brilliant designer in her own right, Erica Debray. And um, we, uh, we met with uh, Karen Pollack. Um, who, what is her title, Michelle? Maybe you're, you've got She's the uh, VP of outreach, the VP of outreach. And she introduced us to Zoe Greggs, who has become such a core part of our team. Um, and was then at at the time, um, working with Karen. Um, and we proposed that we, um, Michelle went over to meet her <laughs> on a lunch break and um, we, Michelle, do you want to tell, tell what you uh, discovered? Yeah, sure. There? Absolutely. So the, um, the, the project is, as Amber is saying, really sort of took off when we connected with the Maternity Care Coalition. We had tried at the institutions for which I worked. There was MoMA. I then went to the Philadelphia Museum of Art um, and I had a long time in the museum field. So we really had reached out both about a book and we realized as we were in conversation with publishers um, that an exhibition would be important because it is a way to market a book and to be able to get a book's reach further and to encourage a publisher to support a publication. Um, That is one way of doing it, especially in the visual arts. So when we realized that we had sort of struck out, there was no museum um, or sort of institution of culture that was willing to take this project on we were at a bit of a loss. And as Amber said, Eric um, shared with us, you know, you should really go talk to Maternity Care Coalition. Um, They were 10 minutes down the road from where I was working at the Philadelphia Museum of Art. And so I went down, met with Karen and Zoe and their CEO, Marianne Frey. Um, And we had gone with the express intention of asking them to partner with us on uh, applying for a Pew uh, Foundation grant. Pew's a brilliant funding body in Philadelphia that really supports a very vibrant art and design um, ecosystem in that city. And with a few days to spare uh, before the date when we had to hand in our first letter of interest, we went down and had this meeting and I explained to them, look, we have this body of research that we feel could be transformative historically. We think it's, you know, builds on many other precedents, but it's maybe a different way of expressing some um, of the design histories uh, which haven't found their way into design history canons and textbooks. On the flip side, you are already designing Maternity Care Coalition, uh, a really healthy city in Philadelphia. They have been working on maternal and child health in that city for the last 40 years, providing access to services um, for folks to self-determine how they want their families not only to survive, but thrive. And so they um, provide access to many things like doulas, lactation consultants, early childhood education opportunities, adult education opportunities. Um, And we felt that a project like this, especially an exhibition, could help communicate their work further, um, especially in their city. Many people, you ask in Philly, they don't know MCC, and they should, um, because their work is transformative for that particular locale. Um, And it's one of the earliest uh, organizations of its type. So to cut a very long story short, uh, Karen and Zoe and Marianne said, yes, of course, we'll partner with you. We've no idea really what you're talking about in terms of the book and exhibition, because our work is in the field. But I think this could be a good mutual partnership. Mm-hmm. And that's how we um, came to create uh, what is now the book, two exhibitions, which will now go on tour, a design curriculum. We partnered with UPenn, um, a narrative storytelling project um, that uh, Zoe and uh, Gabriella Nelson, who's the Associate Director of Policy at um, MCC, uh, partnered on. And the Instagram, actually, which Amber and I started, I think, before we got anywhere, because that was yeah. the thing that we could do for free. <laughs> and can you just describe, because the Instagram has really brought a lot of attention to this project, it seems. Yeah. Yeah, the yeah. Instagram well, it was. Off. Oh, sorry, go ahead. Go ahead. No, no. I mean, I think we were say, going to say the exact same sentence, which was it started as a way for you and I to just trade images, yeah. ideas, uh, you know, little bits and bobs of research just between the two of us. Um, and then at a certain point, we said, hey, friends, do you want to follow this little thing that we've been doing? And it's just kind of grown from there. Um, 
Yeah, it was yeah. a really helpful way to be able to work asynchronously. We often didn't have the same time free and we had little time free, both of us. Yeah. We were both working hard and we still are. And so it was a really helpful way to be able to, uh, yeah, trade back and forth the research that we were uncovering and the different areas that we were interested in, um, the things that we were converging on in terms of research and doing deep dives and it was a place that we could go to when institutions um, were just saying, we're not interested in this content. We don't see an audience for it. Um, we now have over 11,000 followers. And it's obvious to anyone who's been on Instagram recently that there's a huge community um, sort of Venn diagram like that covers maternal health, infant health, motherhood, you know, many, many different issues contained in our book and beyond. Um, so there are you know, copious audiences for this type of material and content and research. Yeah. And I think in retrospect, it's been interesting to see how um, just those little posts that were done in stolen moments really helped shape the book in so many ways. Yep. And, you know, we got some early feedback about what might be interesting to, to other people. Um, yep. So, yeah, it's been it's been pretty core to the project, I'd say. So within the book, you start with an introduction that lays out a lot of your core perspective, including how you are thinking about or uh, maybe defining this idea of motherhood, as well as thinking about the role of this within design and within design history. Can you talk a bit about some of those guiding ideas yes we wanted I'll, I'll say a few things I mean I think <laughs> I think we are one brain at this point in time yeah. at least that's how we wrote the introduction I think we wanted to do two significant things we wanted it to be written in an approachable manner that's why we have uh, the word anus in there in the second paragraph um, we are not um, interested in uh, compounding taboo and so we wanted it to be uh, uh, an introduction that really allowed people um, very immediately into the topic through the language and signaled that the histories within, even though they are robustly researched and very well footnoted, um, are also very readable. So it sort of set the tone from the beginning. We also wanted, um, and we say this throughout the introduction, to be expansive in our definitions of design and in our definitions of motherhood. Amber has three biological children. I have no children, but we think about mothering in very expansive ways that go beyond uh, gender binaries, that go beyond biology, that think about uh, motherhood as an idea that's incredibly um, naughty, contested, something that can be deferred, can be refused, can be embraced wholly, partially, um, is something that is a political um, uh, uh, element of most cultures and lives. And, and we really wanted that to be part of the message alongside the um, provocation that this is material, you know, material culture, objects, systems, ideas that has not been uh, foregrounded and has often been completely um, absent from the design histories that we learned as students, that we ended up teaching, or that we ended up being um, connected to through museum collections. Um, but what would you say, Amber? Yeah, just what you said. Um, I mean, <laughs> I was thinking as I was listening to you talk that um, just, you know, I have a five-month-old baby and um, I hope this isn't TMI, but I had terrible hemorrhoids after this last birth. And I was searching in my own guides, where am I going to find some information about buttholes? And I realized it was in the first paragraph of our own book was like the most comprehensive <laughs> information out there. So, I mean, I haven't even shared that with you, Michelle, but um, go us, <laughs> I'm glad right? you we did. Just, we, right. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, I mean, I think we just wanted to, to to break down a lot of barriers and speak to a lot of different people, like you said, biological mothers um, and otherwise, and um, really kind of dig deep into these histories in a way that hadn't been done before. Yeah, and I, I really, I'm, I'm going to plus one that notion of not being ashamed, because I think... Um, for me personally, the idea of becoming a mother was so um, 
uh, not done. I was in MoMA's architecture and design department and I could not see another person who was a mentor or somebody, um, the generation older than me, who I looked up to for their scholarship or I looked up to for the work that they were doing. No one had children. And so there was a deep um, sense of not seeing this material literally in the workplace, literally in the history. Um, and I think that's what our introduction really tries to um, break with very immediately. You move into different sections that are connected to these different um, moments within the, the cycle of birth, and you start with reproduction. Can you talk a bit about um, maybe a few of the different uh, design moments that you bring into reproduction? Absolutely. I mean, one of the first things we should shout out is Natasha Chandani and Lana Carver's design because that gave yeah. us the framework to do this. They have a fantastic firm called Clonada, and um, I'd worked with them before at MoA on another book, Items as Fashion Modern, um, and we asked them to come back for this book. They really just, they, they gave us the framework, they gave us the different um, uh, uh, sort of chapter divisions. They gave us the possibility of, ha of having image spreads in the book in the way that we do. So we should thank them hugely because we're so grateful for the design they gave us. Um, I guess I'll pick one design and maybe Amber, you could yeah, pick sure. another. Um, in reproduction, well, actually, one of the designs I love, uh, one of the chapters I love here is the one that I wrote on um, being child-free. And so it's not a design so much as thinking about systems and expectations, um, but it starts on page 57 with two pictures of my mom, um, which were very meaningful to me. Um, and it was the first kind of writing I'd done, um, I'd, I'd been allowed to do. And I guess we got to choose the kind of tone we wanted to set, right, um, Amber? But it mm. mixes um, design history and social history, thinking about um, the movement term ch being child-free with um, my own personal history and thinking about the way that my mom um, experienced motherhood and other people like her from a fairly working class uh, socioeconomic background where the term feminism just wasn't something that was in common parlance, but was, um, at least in my eyes, very much present in the way in which she uh, mothered us. I wanted to tell you about um, the menstrual cup, which is one of my uh, favorite chapters in the reproduction. Basically, this is a, this is a huge one of our game changers as we talk about um, certain designs throughout the book. Um, and uh, you know, the patent, the first patent, was actually incredibly old and predates a lot of the other menstrual technologies that we uh, use quite regularly today. Um, including the tampon. Um, and though it was kind of a, uh, a clunky first patent, it was made in 1867, which is really kind of amazing to think about because I think most people kind of think about the menstrual cup as being more, uh, more something that is used today than it was in the past. Um, but it was really an actress called Leona Watson Chalmers who in 1935 patented um, the version that we most uh, is most familiar to us. Um, and really it was about um, allowing her to wear her costume of white silk dresses as she talks about with some sort of ease um, and wearing a menstrual device within her own body rather than, you know, having having her menstrual blood leak out. Um, so the, the, um, the impetus was really kind of like a mixture of interesting fashion history, but also allowing for so much sartorial freedom, bodily freedom, um, and is really kind of a revolution today. I mean, the menstrual cup, I would argue, is one of the most brilliant design histories that we have um, in the book because it's um <laughs> it's like i wish you could see what's going on here i have a, a hopping child on my lap and i'm really trying to <laughs> he's like all of the sudden just so active so i am going to put him down in his little nearby cradle um but anyway the um 
the menstrual cup um, is environmentally uh, friendly. It's one object that you can use across a lifetime rather than um, a great number of objects that can that have to be thrown away um, and repurchased. So it's it's really great in so many different directions. And I we could have had so many so many objects and and designs and ideas and and issues and systems in each of our um, four sections. It was a lot of whittling down on post its um, to choose what went into these, but. Um, the section itself begins with the cell and looks at um, interspecies forms of mothering. Uh, we have a fantastic collaborator, Orkin Telhan, who's a professor at University of um, Pennsylvania's design department. Um, and he partnered with us on the designing motherhood curriculum that we taught at UPenn for a couple of semesters and then made open source. Um, and so he's uh, first contributed to this uh, section. And then we have some you know, well-known entities like Our Bodies Ourselves, um, some perhaps lesser known devices uh, like the Dell M, um, the uh, DIY at home abortion kit, um, and some really beautiful uh, visual essays, one of which is by the um, photographer uh, Joni Byron, who um, has done many, many things um, with their amazing career, but um, in, in one um, facet of it has taken the most beautiful photographs of um, various protests, um, uh, various meetings, looking at LGBTQ lives and individuals and families. Um, so we're very proud to have their work as part of the book. You also really highlight the, um, the political histories and pull apart these different objects to show these larger political histories, uh, including, for instance, talking about sterilization abuse. Yeah, yeah, with the Delcon Shield um, and um, with the um, the through the sterilization um, protest posters as well. So we have um, the the Delcon Shield was a, an IUD device that was given to millions of women uh, throughout the 1970s, developed by A. H. Robbins. And we have an interview with Professor Loretta Ross, who is a pioneer in the reproductive justice movement. Um, and uh, she underwent a, a, a hysterectomy against her consent. She was given um, an IUD, a Delcon Shield, um, in the 1970s, repeatedly went back to her doctor over six months complaining of severe abdominal pain, pelvic pain. Um, was told that she probably had venereal disease, was dismissed uh, in terms of her concerns, ended up uh, going into a coma at home because of septic shock, it turned out. Um, the Dalcon shield uh, had been wicking up bacteria into her cervix. Um, this happened to many, many other women. Uh, the, the class action lawsuit that happened was second only in its size to asbestos, actually, about a decade later. Um, but she became a pioneer of reproductive justice because of um, her personal experience and has shared it widely um, in order to make sure that others don't um, uh, suffer the same issue. And then, yeah, we look at sterilization abuse through um, a poster by Rachel Romero, um, designed in the 70s for rallies against forced sterilization. The chapter is written by Professor um, Natalie Lira. And it looks again at the sort of systemic disenfranchisement of uh, reproductive agency, um, often very specifically for women of color um, and in uh, different sort of locales and scenarios over the last 100 years or so, although this history goes much further back. Um, most recently, listeners might have been aware of um, issues within the, I think it was the Californian prison system, where even in the last couple of years, people were being um, given surgery to sterilize uh, without any kind of consent. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda, whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe every day at Saks.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If Only in Theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? 
All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month and six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. You then move into a section on pregnancy. Yeah. What were the kinds of questions that guided this section? So we, we looked at um, <laughs> the, the, the questions that guided this section were trying to think about the, the widest possible lens to think about what is both uh, an experience that is had by millions of people and also unique to each person. Um, and thinking about the ways in which objects, systems, and individuals could tell really compelling stories. For each of the sections, the question that guided us was how can we tell through visual stories, through first-person narratives, and through in-depth historical research, um, the most expansive design history. And so you'll see in this section um, a range of different stories. Uh, two of our favorites, I think, or two of my favorites, I can say, the home pregnancy test was an early um, object that really galvanized this project designed by Meg Crane, a graphic designer. So I think most people, if they didn't know the history of the home pregnancy test, would think a scientist perhaps had come up with it. But no, it was a graphic designer. And she has a brilliant design history that we're, we're happy to recount if, if you'd like. The other story, though, that then, then I will, and I'll, I'll come back to that in a second. To say the other story that's really important here, though, is um, masculine birth. And um, we interviewed Thomas Beatty, who uh, gave birth to his children over the last decade or so. Um, and uh, he had to fight quite um, hard to have his, him rec- himself recognized as the father of his children, the birthing father of his children, on their birth certificate. He was, I think, the first person to have um, his name listed successfully in that category rather than in the mother category where it had been initially um, reported by the birth registrar in the hospital because they said there was no precedent for a birthing father. He created that precedent. And so he talks very movingly about the design of language. Um, but yeah, the home pregnancy test is a brilliant design story. It's a it's one that I'll try and recount in under 60 seconds or so because it could take a lot longer. It's so fun. Meg Crane is still a graphic designer in New York. We met for a bowl of soup a couple of years ago. She came to see the um, Designing Motherhood show. But in 1969, she was a really young graphic designer at Organon, which is a pharmaceutical company in New Jersey. And um, she was designing over-the-counter packaging for the medicines that the company um, produced. One day she was walking through the labs that were attached to her offices with a colleague of hers. And she pointed to a row of test tubes and said, what's happening over there? And he said it was test tubes filled with urine. They were being um, uh, tested for pregnancy. And she looked at the setup and said, I bet you a woman could do that at home, (laughs) to which she was told, of course they couldn't. And uh, all of our customers are doctors, so we'd rather you didn't suggest that. Um, She went back to her desk and she dumped out a clear Perspex container she had on it that was filled with paper clips. And she recreated a very simple lab bench set up in it with a test tube and the chemicals that were needed to test her pregnancy. She took it to her supervisor and said, look, you could have this as a product. And he said, don't be stupid. Um, But unbeknownst to her, started to apply to the parent company, a Dutch company, for funding to develop this idea. He hired an external ad agency and design agency to come in and develop it for them. And Meg got wind of an on-site meeting that was going to happen, and she turned up at it, um, put her prototype down on the table next to a couple of others. Um, The head of the ad agency was late to the meeting, so as the tale goes, when he came into the uh, meeting, he looked down the table, picked up Meg's prototype, which didn't have the pink bows, bells, whistles, tassels on it that the male designers had thought were integral parts of pregnancy testing. And he said, well, of course, we should have this design. It's really simple. It's elegant. It's economic. Um, And so that went to market. It came to the market um, in the early 1970s in places like the UK and Canada. It took about six or seven years longer in the US because, amongst other things, uh, doctors really fought the idea that women could do this in their own homes with privacy um, and wouldn't have to come to a doctor's office. 
So Meg really revolutionized what we now take for granted as something that we can pick up um, at the pharmacy and do for ourselves. Yeah, I'm happy to talk about something. I yeah, I'm I'm also um, blissfully infant free right now, so <laughs> hopefully I'll be able to um, <laughs> tell tell a succinct story. Um, although no promises. <laughs> um, one of my favorites um, in this pregnancy section is the beetle doppler and pinard horn. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's really looking at uh, uh, a less and a more uh, technology story in this one. Um, the fetal Doppler, which is, of course, the um, device that allows one to hear a fetus's heartbeat um, and is play played um, using ultrasound. Um, and projected into the room um, was created by a physician and inventor, uh, Dr. Edward H. Hahn um, in 1958. Um, and the Pinard horn is a, a lot older. Um, and that's kind of a, it's also, um, it's kind of like a horn shaped object that really just gets pushed up against one's pregnant belly and can be listened to by a provider. Um, oftentimes, a midwife um, is using it these days. It's really a device that's used all over the world, um, but it was invented by the French obstetrician Adolphe Pinard in 1895. Um, and it's really, it's uncomplicated, inexpensive, super safe, there's no question about it, whereas um, some are concerned about um, ultrasound and um, uh, repeated ultrasound in the case of the Doppler. Um, and like I said, I mean, this is a, the, the uh, Pinard's horn is used by midwives specifically all throughout the world, even today, even in some of the most um, advanced and industrialized um, um, countries in the world. Um, I'll just read a quote that I included in the chapter and that I really love about kind of like the pros and cons of both. And that was from um, a pregnant woman um, in Copenhagen. She was pregnant a few years ago. Um, and she said, quote, I had had plenty of high tech hospital visits where I felt cold, lost and exposed. And this appointments with midwives who use the Pinard by comparison, was calm and comforting. Plus, the high-tech hospital equipment was really shitty. Half the time, I'd be at the larger hospitals, and they'd take inaccurate measurements or not be able to find the heartbeat for a moment, and it would be terrifying. The low-tech stuff was always reliable and instant. So just, um, just uh, you know, we have this attitude that, you know, um, the more that we design and the more technological, the better. Um, I think it's, uh, you know, easy to kind of fall down into that trap. But um, this is an object that really complicates that. Um, and yeah, we really love it for that reason. I want to highlight also that what I find interesting within this chapter is that on the one hand, you're looking at objects within a more medical setting, but you're also thinking about design um, in people's personal lives. So thinking about pregnancy, fashion and undergarments and uh, pregnancy pillows, as well as mm -hmm. baby showers and gender reveals. So a really expansive uh, look at the different uh, kinds of design within this section, within the whole book. Yeah. Thank you so much for noticing that. I mean, that's absolutely purposeful. And I mean, I think that it's true. I would say that um, we get asked to speak about um, the more medical uh, devices and innovations, I think more often than some of those personally felt objects. And um, we really wanted the balance. So um, yeah, I mean, <laughs> things like the pregnancy pillow, it was kind of like, we were like, let's include this one because this is, no, it's not um, as groundbreaking as let's say the pregnancy test 
or the sonogram, but this is something that if you've used one, you are thanking your lucky stars every single day because they've made such a huge difference in the life of one's pregnancy and in one's personal comfort. And it deserves to be looked at closely and kind of elevated to that same height. Um, So yeah, thank you so much for noticing that. I mean, just to say about pregnancy pillows, they also are such a big part of your visual landscape if you have one and you're pregnant. <laughs> like if you think about these huge pillows that cover up three quarters of your bed, but then also, <laughs> at least in my house, we still have all of these pillows everywhere mm-hmm. as I cycled through them. And so yeah. they're in all of my pictures with my babies as well. Oh, so that's I really lovely. Liked- and- <laughs> I yeah, have to also I give have... a big shout out to Erica Rockefeller, exactly. who um, our friend and photographer who made what is a very quotidian object or a very sort of un- un- undervalued object, um, something that at least I don't think has had many photo shoots in its day um, that haven't <laughs> revolved around um, really terrible stock photography with women having semi-orgasmic experiences next to them apparently I mean the the photographs are really funny she made it look very different and very beautiful so we're so yeah so grateful to her for that and also I think we we are um interested in these quieter more personal moments and in thinking about them in ways that are not um expected perhaps the baby shower as you mentioned is a really good example Shoshana Greenwald is a good friend of Amber's was the person who kindly took that on as a chapter we have about 50 different contributors to the book Shoshana is one of them and she talks about um, it from her perspective as an orthodox Jewish woman and thinking about the fact that in her culture a baby shower is not really part of culture at all Um, and so looking at it through a lens that is perhaps a little more unexpected. You then move into a section on birth. Can you describe uh, overall the kinds of things you were looking at within this chapter as well as give some examples of it? Yeah, absolutely. Um, We look at lots of different things. We open with the hospital bag, a beautiful essay written by design historian Aidan O'Connor. Um, we think about modern marvels like the baby drawer, um, a mid, mid-century uh, um, mechanism that was uh, tested out in Kaiser Permanente hospitals on the West Coast. We're just writing a journal article on them at the moment, actually. They're fantastic. They literally, literally were a filing drawer next to um, a, a new mother's bed. And the filing drawer could get pushed back into um, a nursery area if you wanted a nurse to look after your baby, or you could pull it out um, if you wanted to um, be be in charge of tending to them. And it was meant to do, amongst other things, um, uh, it was meant to help encourage bonding and breastfeeding. Um, and then we also look at electronic fetal monitoring, um, placentas, birth photography, home birth, uh, doulas and birth companions. Um, I, I can pick one um, that's particularly meaningful to me. We have, amongst many visual essays in the book, in this section, we have the work of Helen Redman. Um, and I came ac- across Helen's work. She's a painter based now in San Diego. She's just turned 82. I came across her work in um, Frontiers, the feminist journal. Um, it was an article from 1978 where she showed a body of work that was related to Um, having recently lost an infant, she was pregnant in 1964 with her second child. Um, And her first child, a toddler at the time, um, uh, died very unexpectedly. And so she went through a very frenzied moment of creating self-portraits of herself while pregnant at nine months suffering this loss. And she talks very movingly about uh, grief, about um, wanting to sort of represent herself to show herself that she was still present and alive at that moment in time because it seemed almost unbelievable that she could be. Um, And so I I got in touch with her um, while we were uh, planning for the book and reached out. um, And I asked her uh, if she wouldn't mind uh, if I could have a Zoom with her. And we now have very regular uh, Zooms. I hope to go and meet her at one point in in San Diego. But she talked about the works that she created at that moment in time that hadn't really been shown to anybody else since then. Um, She allowed us to include them in the book. And I actually brought them into the collection of the MFA in Boston as well, where they're now on display in one of our exhibition galleries. So I think when we think about 
birth. We, we think about a range of different designs, issues, ideas, um, but it's very important to us. Amber uh, beautifully put together a very moving chapter in this um, section on designs for grief. And I think being able to think about the full spectrum of experiences for us was important and representing some of them in this section um, uh, is important too. Yeah, um, I'll just jump in, Michelle, and say that, um, you know, I mean, of course, my own uh, experience with birth um, helped shape some of what we wrote about. Um, I write a much kind of a companion piece to Michelle's child-free essay. I wrote an essay on home birth. Um, but uh, interestingly, I kind of had to go out of my own experience and... Um, I had all three of my babies at home, which is why that was such a personal experience. And I also was born at home um, in the 80s. Um, but I had to, like I said, go out of my own experience um, in order to write some of um, the chapters, including Designs for Grief, but also um, the chapter or the section on the clear cesarean uh, curtains. Um, one in three births today is uh, in the U.S. is by cesarean. And though I was sort of intimidated to write this chapter because it was so far from my own experience, I felt really important to kind of delve in and find um, a way in that um, elevated this experience. And actually the, the wonderful mutual friend that um, introduced Michelle and I, uh, Jessica, she experienced a birth um, with clear cesarean curtains, and that kind of started us, uh, our interest in researching it. So, I mean, uh, for those of you who haven't undergone a cesarean, um, the C-section curtain, kind of the traditional one, is just kind of a, an opaque curtain that um, cuts off the the body part from the head part, right, of the birthing person. So um, though they are delivering a baby, they might never get to see or um, really kind of experience more intimately what that is like. Um, so even the term C-section implies separation, right? And so many people uh, report feeling cut off from their birth and this can impact postpartum depression, breastfeeding rates, um, and often the protocols that go along with um, more traditional cesarean births delay parental contact um, with one's infant. And that really impairs bonding and, like I said, goes back to um, impact these postpartum depression and breastfeeding rates. So... Um, it, one very simple innovation has been to make these curtains clear or simply drop the curtain away um, for those who are interested. Not everybody is, right? Um, but for those who feel like they want to experience their cesarean more intimately, there are these design innovations that allow that to happen. Um, we highlight one version developed by three nurses in Virginia that has a portal within the curtain that allows the infant to be handed through by the obstetrician um, onto the mother's chest. So the contact is immediate. And this is a really super simple design innovation. Um, and it just goes back to the simple fact that watching one's own baby uh, for the first time within birth Allows the, allows the birthing person to better experience this huge monumental shift. Um, and it's, it's such a beautiful story. And I love, I'm going to um, build on that actually, Amber, to add a little bit more about some of the other um, designs and ideas in this section. I love the idea of who gets to witness birth and how. Um, and yeah. in this section, we have, for example, an essay written by one of my lovely former colleagues at MoMA, Sophie Kavalakis, who's a film curator, and she talks about birth in film. Um, and yes. she really dives Love into, a, yeah, it's, it's such a great chapter. And it, it really um, gives a, a wonderful kind of history of how birth has featured in films that are from... Um, uh, alternative, uh, different um, places that really go outside the norm of 
um, our stereotypical understanding of someone screaming in pain and two seconds later after some very loud huffing and puffing, um, the baby arriving. And so she, with wonderful um, uh, aplomb, uh, talks about how birth has featured in film over the last 100, 100 years or so. And then we also have what might at first glance be sort of uh, almost a throwaway chapter in a way, but something we really wanted to write about. Um, we look at space and architecture in different ways. Um, and there's a chapter on the steps of the Lindo Wing, which are the, it's the place outside St. Mary's Hospital in London where royal births are often announced. And so this notion of... Definitely not um, a throwaway chapter, <laughs> just saying. It's a great one. One of my favorites. <laughs> I love this space because, I love of course, it. our, you know, Amber and I, and, you know, probably you as well, Holiday, we are of the generation where in some way, in some part of our consciousness, those very early announcements, um, you know, Charles and Diana coming out on the steps. Um, uh, Princess Anne was actually the first person, though, to leave the Lindo Wing with her son, Peter Phillips, in 1977. Those are the precursors to the kind of spectacle of birth announcements that now is, you know, so commonplace on Instagram. Um, so there's the, the, the ways of seeing birth, who gets to see birth, how we witness it, um, that's in this uh, section too, and perhaps the best of all is a very um, underknown, uh, should be better known film from 1953 called All My Babies, directed by George Stoney, but the real star of it is Mary Frances Coley, who is a black midwife from the South um, in Georgia, and the um, film is ostensibly a documentary commissioned by the US, um, sorry, the Georgia uh, Health Department, um, it was meant to show uh, other midwives in training what it was to become a good midwife, in, in quotes. Um, but it really is an homage to uh, the really intimate work and the really powerful work that midwives um, in the U.S. in the mid-century um, and very often women, women of color doing the work of bearing witness, being in people's homes, being in people's lives and being the first people to help um, babies come into the world. I uh, I just want to highlight also within this section that that the parts of birth that you are talking about are the process of birth, but also the experience and the the body that goes through birth. I noticed especially the uh, perineal repair simulator. Yeah, as one part of birth that perhaps is less often discussed. Yeah, absolutely. Um, we were really um, lucky to talk to Dr. Adam Dabrowski. Um, he's um, in Ontario. He's at Ontario Tech University. And he um, has created a 3D um, perineal repair simulator. So if you imagine, you know, as a, a medical student, you get to practice lots of different things on non-human um, bodies, on, on simulators. And one of those things is how to effectively um, do surgical stitching. Um, and one place you often need surgical stitches um, after birth is in your um, perineum, um, the place between the vaginal canal and the anus, which can sometimes tear, sometimes quite badly. Um, and so he wanted to create a design that would be 3D printable. Um, so he's created this as an open source design that can be downloaded. Um, the, if you have a 3D printer, you can print what is a, a simulation of this area of the human anatomy. Um, and then it allows people to um, practice their stitching on different degrees of tear in this area. Um, up until this point, um, and, and still actually, um, some uh, uh, surgical residents, uh, midwives and others, um, practice stitching on um, pieces of fruit, on, on you know, steaks, on, on cow meat. Um, and he really wanted to have a way to create um, some veracity of, of experience to, to really allow people to understand specifically the anatomy that they would be dealing with. Um, and to to yeah to to have a design that could be um, open source so that lots of people could access it and hopefully improve their skills in what is you know quite a painful intimate process and something that should be done with the highest skill possible. Yeah. You then 
end the book with a section on postpartum. Would you like to talk about some of those, um, some of those design moments and some of what you were doing within this section? Absolutely. Well, we finally got the breast pump in somewhere, right, Amber? <laughs> yeah, that's right. After it took a while. Finally, finally. Um, <laughs> yeah, the, the breast pump is in there. I mean, we, again, I'm looking at the table of contents just now. We, we really look at a range of different ideas, objects, systems. We go from Dr. Spock's um, Common Sense Book of Baby and Child Care, looking at the the history of the parental advice manual, which could be a book in and of itself, which probably would just say in its first sentence, put this book down, you know, <laughs> or as Dr. Spock said, you know more than you think you do. Um, that mm. chapter is written by the really wonderful Angela Garbers, um, who is such a lyrical writer on motherhood and we're very grateful Brilliant. to her. We love yeah. her. <laughs> Absolutely fantastic. Um, I don't know. We, we look at newborn IDs, the incubator, um, the, the cuddle up blanket, that pink and blue striped blanket that almost everybody who has a hospital birth has, has seen before. Um, we well, look at the nursing bra. Can you describe that? Because I actually didn't realize that that was a design. It's so present that it's hard to even recognize it as an object that has been designed, the cuddle up blanket. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, we, we say it's so ubiquitous that it's basically invisible, right? I yeah. mean, it's just in every in the background where the infant is the star, or the newborn is the star of the photo. Um, it's in the background just waiting there. Um, thank you. Um, the cuddle up um, is um, was developed by what's now known as um, Medline, which is like a major medical supply company, um, was um, uh, started as um, uh, by the work of A.L. Mills, who was an apron maker in the Chicago meatpacking district. And um, he was asked actually by a group of nuns who were caring for um, a maternal ward in a nearby hospital, can you help us with some of our sewing so that we can actually focus on the care itself? So he started manufacturing um, just like baby blankets, uh, which were, you know, kind of a brown muslin kind of thing. And that kind of opened the doors for him to expand his uh, medical textile business. He's, if you've ever seen the like classic kind of pistachio colored uh, surgical scrubs. That was another um, A.L. Mills uh, invention, actually. Um, and um, in the mid 50s, um, he kind of decided to jazz it up, as it were, uh, the, the design of these baby blankets and wanted something that would be suitable for uh, babies who were boys or babies who were girls. Um, or, um, uh, yeah, so um, he added the blue and pink stripes um, that we know so well today and called it the candy, cuddle up and candy stripe. Um, so it would be, you know, bright and clean feeling and suitable for babies of any sex. But really what's so interesting about it is that um, this was a U.S. design, right? And along with so many other uh, uh, of our medical uh, hospital-based practices, we have exported this blanket all around the world. So you don't only see this blanket in pictures from babies from the U.S. You see them in Pakistan, um, in all over Europe. I mean, they have really gone all over the world. And today they are actually um, manufactured in Pakistan as well. So it's really the, it tells a really fascinating story of how we've kind of uh, mechanized birth in so many ways and um, really exported a lot of the birthing practices that are part of the U.S. hospital birth culture. And thinking about U.S. hospital birth culture, the chapter before is on the incubator, 
Um, and that was, and there's been some really fantastic scholarship done on the incubator. It wasn't um, one of those designs that was undersung by any means, but it really, it was hit home yesterday. I was chatting to a friend of mine, a curator at work, who's just spent 101 days with her new baby in the NICU. Um, oh and my gosh. yeah, really, I mean, the, the research that we did for this chapter, I love Sarah de Gregorio's um, book, uh, and we reference it in the, the footnotes uh, early, which is an intimate history of premature birth, um, uh, based uh, or sort of stemming from her own experience um, with a NICU baby as well. Um, but we also went to Phillips, um, based in Cambridge in um, Massachusetts, where Colleen Newland um, is a really fantastic designer, and she's been working on um, what she calls the NICU of the future after having a similar um, experience. Um, the incubator came out of, um, of all things uh, uh, zoos and the, um, the, the attempt to keep very small, very premature animals uh, warm early on. But they also ended up in the early 20th century being a feature of uh, World's Fairs and on Coney Island, actually. Um, they were, you could pay to go in and look at uh, premature infants in early versions of incubators because... Um, there, it, it, it was and it still is very expensive to keep um, very small babies, very tiny, very early babies alive. And so that was one of the only ways that it could be bankrolled at the time before hospitals and hospital insurance um, started to really focus on um, the care of very premature infants. And hospital insurance didn't really cover actually uh, premature infancy um, until the uh, latter part of the 20th century. But it really, um, that chapter for me really sits as one that describes an incredibly interesting and complex design that has actually had quite a, a large amount of innovation applied to it over the decades, um, but also just a, a really broken system in terms of the US healthcare mm. system, one that didn't uh, cover infants uh, until they had survived 15 days at a certain point in time, but also talking to my colleague um, who didn't have enough paid leave and so had to leave her infant in the NICU um, and go back to work in order to maintain the healthcare coverage that was keeping her alive. At the same point, just leaving her heart and her mind every single day with her infant um, and not really being able to, to compute what was happening to both of them until she was able to get her home safely. I think, Michelle and Amber, I love hearing your stories, but we have taken up so much of your time. Um, can I ask before we end what you are both working on now? Absolutely. Amber, do you want to go first? Sure, I'd be happy to. Um, well, uh, in addition to the project of my <laughs> my family, which is just completely ongoing and very time consuming um, with three little ones, I am um, preparing for a Fulbright um, that will start in mid-April. Um, and it will take uh, me as well as my family to Budapest in Hungary. And there I'm looking at uh, the work of a physician and really a design reformer called Emmy Pickler, um, who in many ways started so much of what we know in the U.S. at least as the respectful care movement. Um, but I really I kind of have been working on this elevator pitch, so let me know how this sits with you. But I think the project is going to be focused on infant motor development caregiving and design so there you have it <laughs> wonderful <laughs> that is exciting um i i have two conflicting projects um i'm trying to have a child uh, holiday and it's taken years longer than i thought it would and so um that's an ongoing project uh, which amber and i chat about very often so um we'll see how that goes but i also have a i'm at the mfa and so i have a lot of different projects happening there just now but i just um, uh, this week I actually signed my new book contract for a project called Craft Schools and so I'm excited to go do that. The research however is taking me via train across all 48 contiguous states and so um, we'll see how trying to get pregnant works with traveling to, to lots of different places. I'm sure it will work but um, I'm really interested in looking at um, histories of craft that um, 
are outside of some of the more common boundaries of studio craft. And one of the really nice confluences with designing motherhood is that my, my research question is asking who is your most important teacher to a lot of uh, makers and artists across the States. And so often those histories are deeply matrilineal. Um, and so it's my hope that they will help us tell an expanded story of contemporary craft. Oh, wonderful. Well, Amber and Michelle, I want to thank you so much for being on the show today. I really enjoyed it. Thank you for having us. Thank you, Holiday. Take care.